From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year anniversary celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. Why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? A just question, my liege. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Ill News is an Ill Guest, our ninth episode of our coverage of 2002's The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. But first, our spoiler warning. While The Ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies have not. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we'll also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even The Hobbit films. But first, we have a pretty big major announcement up top, though anyone who is on the Patreon or follows our Twitter will probably know this by now. I will actually be joining the Nauticast podcast in a Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast that's currently hosted by Emmett Booth, who will join us for our 16th episode, Drums in the Deep. Um, as you can tell by all I've said on this podcast, A Song of Ice and Fire is a core love of mine, and it is where I both started my pop culture writing and podcasting hobbies. I will be joining Emmett start, starting in August, where we will be picking up his reread with Sansa 3 from A Storm of Swords, which is a very memorable chapter, the one where Sansa and Tyrion get married. We will also be rolling right through into coverage of House of the Dragon, the new HBO show that is a prequel spinoff of Game of Thrones, the TV series. There's still a lot of details we're trying to iron out around that, so I won't uh, portend any further, but I'm really excited to be joining that. But over here at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, we plan to still be going strong. I will be closing down some of my other podcast projects, but not this one. No, not this, mostly because I love hearing Emily go insane every week. <laughs> Sometime in August, we will be converting my Patreon, patreon.com slash bomb, to be a full-time My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast Patreon. Um, at this point, uh, everything should otherwise stay the same in terms of our nor normal release schedule, though we will kind of try to time our... Uh, Rings of Power episode, so you're not waiting a week, a week and a half to uh, receive those. We will also restructure the Patreon tiers and work on new goals and bonuses that we, we will kind of announce probably after the Rings of Power and we get through that whole mess. And for anyone who's concerned, yes, I will continue to post cat pictures, though now they may come with Lord of the Rings quotes instead of whatever dumb bullshit I usually post <laughs> with them. <laughs> All right. Well, since I thought that was all too exciting and too much fun, uh, I'm going to kick this sucker off with <laughs> probably the most boring topic I could have possibly picked uh, for a podcast like this. Uh, and it is theories of kingship. Um, and, and I realized that like I'm kind of possibly underselling an entire sort of theory of uh, like how do I hate political science as a term. I think it's bullshit, but like a theory of uh, an important theory of political science, certainly like an important intellectual uh, theory and debate throughout the last mm, 2000 or so years of history. Um, 
but uh, you know, it is something that 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 not very many people are interested in talking about. Um, with the sort of liberal revolutions of the 18th century, uh, uh, under the guise of the Enlightenment, I think like by and large we've really stopped uh, talking about the concept of uh, kings and and why kings rule. Uh, we sort of just accept at this point that they are like there, uh, and in a lot of cases we're kind of begrudgingly accepting of them. Uh, maybe less so uh, in, for example, the very many uh, countries of the commonwealth the british commonwealth that have uh, like over the past couple years declared independence uh, but for the most part we kind of just let these suckers uh, exist uh, and don't really think too hard about it um, or why it was that our ancestors allowed allowed i say uh, as if it was an act of choice but uh, did not openly rebel against uh, such a heinous uh, form of government uh, you know we just take our kind of democracy for granted and we don't think about the alternatives in any sort of concerted way um but i actually don't think that that's like a particularly helpful or useful thing when it comes to the issue of reading or talking about the lord of the rings where Theories of kingship are basically the raison d'etre of of the book, uh, and certainly to a lesser extent the the movies, but it, the movies in a kind of weird liberal way. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, we maybe need to lay on the table here before we really get into it is that um, I don't think it's helpful to um, assign a sort of like. Um, intelligence value to people who lived and died under monarchy. Uh, not just, I mean, you know, maybe it's fair enough to call the Brits morons now for still having a queen. Uh, but, uh, you know, under the divine right of kings, um, not only is it not a sort of marker of your intelligence to have not been a, a Republican, but there was also, I think, a really sort of robust body of um of work and of evidence justifying the existence of, of kings, of monarchs um, that um, would have and, and maybe arguably should have convinced uh, people <laughs> of any sort of intellectual capacity, um, which is basically just like a fancy douchey way of saying, like, we can't just judge people for like the fucking feudal peasants for having not rebelled against their king, because actually, like, there were a lot of like really robust arguments for having kings uh, that people could have very easily been convinced of in this same way that now your average Joe is just as convinced of democracy. And prefacing all of that, again, with uh, I'm a Republican, uh, so I'm not in support of monarchies. I just feel the need the, to, to, to say that we should be slightly more sympathetic to um, our forebears, uh, our uh, feudal forebears, than, than maybe we are. Anyways, so kings. They were kind of a problem for uh, the however many years of existence we've all had to contend with uh, since the the record books started. I think like it's technically like ten thousand years or something, but I'm not an ancient historian and would never try to be. Um, there there was sort of a justification for kings and rulership and dynastic rule uh, that that dominated certainly in Western Europe for the the vast majority of the existence of or the the hegemony of monarchy. Um, it, as a political system. Um, and it's a it's a thing called the divine right of kings. Um, and I feel like this is kind of something that everybody gets in like primary school or eighth grade or whatever, elementary school, um, where you go over the concept of uh, the divine right of kings, which is to say like um, kings are justified in their rulership because they were ordained by God to rule. Um, and if uh, God had not wanted it, then God would not have made these people kings. And these people are kings because they are named by God. And, and it's sort of circular logic. And we all kind of look at that uh, in our slightly more atheist or agnostic secular world, I guess, and go, well, that's obviously horseshit. Um, but it's a really powerful motivating factor. Um, and 
it also is not quite so simple as that. Um, and I realize it's a, it's a slightly weird dunk to be like, oh, well, actually, history is more complicated than public <laughs> like elementary schools are capable of teaching you. Like, no shit, Emily, obviously. Um, but a lot of people never really get into the, the concept of like the theory of kings and, and the theory of monarchy beyond like eighth grade <laughs> public school <laughs> education. Um, and that's not like a moral judgment. It's just true. Like, why the fuck would you talk about this stuff? We live in a democracy. Well, some people, uh, the American audience allegedly live in a democracy. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> um, if you say so, if you say so. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's more like a, I guess technocracy, I guess would be the word for the Supreme Court. Yeah, cagistocracy. Fuck knows. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyways, we have to remind ourselves that until, well, not even until very recently, actually, the the Supreme Court reminder is actually a very important reminder that um, the secularization and and secularism has never in history been the standard. Um, And it has never really been hegemonic, even in the United States, which is ostensibly a secular republic. If you go take a look at what Samuel Alito wrote in his uh, Dobbs decision uh, revoking Roe versus Wade, uh, it is uh, heavily, heavily influenced, not just by sort of like the kind of weak, limp uh, pseudo-Christianity that's so common among evangelicals in the United States, but actually like a very long uh, and prolific uh, 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 tradition of Uh, Calvinist in particular, but Protestant English jurisprudence, which draws its legitimization from the church. and so, and so, knowing all of this, you know, we can't, you know, the, some of the guys that he cites, that that Alito cites, uh, you know, are were certainly considered whack jobs in their own time and were radicals, I guess, more accurately. Um, but it's not to say that they were totally out there by saying we should take our legitimacy, our, our uh, reason for having and abiding by laws from the Bible. That was actually totally the standard. Um, and um, in in a sort of more complex sense, the the very existence of the state uh, itself uh, came came from from God, from from the Bible, uh, and and the right to rule. Um, and I don't just mean that as in like God picks the kings. But um, a, there's a lad, a lovely little lad named Dante Alighieri, uh, who you may have heard of. <laughs> I sometimes talk about with moderation on this podcast. Um, but he wrote this incredible treatise um, called uh, De Monarchia, um, which. Uh, which basically argues for uh, the legitimacy, not just of the Roman Empire, but also of uh, Christ's sacrifice on the cross, like Jesus Christ's ability to uh, save all of man through through his sacrifice uh, at the crucifixion, um, because uh, the the church and the state quite literally legitimize one another. Um, so the argument in De Monarchia goes, uh, you know, Jesus's sacrifice wouldn't have been legitimate to, you know, cleanse the sins of mankind um, if he hadn't been executed by a legitimate voice or a legitimate representative of the people, e.g. the Roman Empire. Um, And in turn, the Roman Empire is legitimized as a voice of the people of the world by the fact that it was able to execute Christ and Christ was able to absolve mankind of its sins. Uh, and we know each of these, th- we know that Jesus absolutely, you know, if, if you're Christian, I guess, or if you're Catholic or Dante, uh, you know that Christ uh, absolved mankind of its of its sins uh, through the crucifixion, through, through, through the sacrifice, through the passion. Uh, and because we know that that is absolutely unequivocally true, we also therefore know that the Roman Empire was a, a sort of legitimate uh, voice for people, for mankind. Uh, in the temporal realm on earth. Um, and so from here you get the, these sort of 
more wide-ranging arguments about why monarchy exists and, and how monarchy exists. Uh, and uh, one of the key sort of things is this notion of temporal care. Um, if you are a Christian, uh, your life is uh, led in pursuit of the afterlife because when you get to heaven, you will have this greater euphoria, you will have this greater closeness with God, which is everything, according to Christians, that a spirit should need or want, a soul should need or want. Um but you do spend 80-odd years on Earth. Uh, and when you are spending those 80-odd years on Earth, um, it is up to you, it is up to your priests, it is up to the people around you, to the state, to shepherd you, quite literally shepherd you, because that's the language Christians use, to ensure that you are taken care of morally. Um, and this is where the state comes in. Um, and so uh, feudal lords, uh, knights, uh, kings, queens have this obligation to the people. And it's not just this sort of cynical transaction where the king takes everything you own and the church takes the last 10% through tithe. But people genuinely believed and argued um, that kings served a higher, holier purpose by ensuring the moral goodness and righteousness of the kingdoms they ruled over. Um, and this was seen as a two-way transaction. It wasn't just, oh, the king's fucking me over and taking all my shit and I don't have any arms and I don't have any money, so I can't fight back. But if I had arms and money, I would fight back. It's There's a very legitimate transaction or relationship, actually, not even transaction. There's a very legitimate relationship that's going on here where I give what, you know, I render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Uh, and in return, Caesar ensures that I am, I and the people around me in this kingdom remain on the morally righteous path. Now, obviously, history tells us that this doesn't really work, but this is this is sort of the core legitimization of kings. In return, uh, and in 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 Britain in particular, where this is this is a slightly more famous concept, you get this concept of noblesse oblige, which is basically this idea of the the feudal lords also owe something to their serfs, to the to the peasants that work their estates. But um, it, it has this slightly more British paternalistic patronizing <laughs> approach to it, where it's not just the like spiritual goodness and it's not just ensuring that the land uh, that you are tilling is good and works and that you have the resources to do it. It's also sort of like the kind of cloying Downton Abbey white gloved shit where you go and talk and you give advice and you give your blessing to the dumb little farmer who wants to go marry his dumb little like farmer at and, and you take an active interest in, in the lives of the people who you literally control as a, a half step up above slaves. Um, and, and this is sort of the idea of noblesse oblige is that kings do owe something in return to the people in their kingdom, the, the, the people in their flock, essentially. Um, and, and this is really one of the most important things that, that J.R.R. Tolkien is dealing with uh, in the Rohan plot. Um, and it is, it is the most important thing, not just because it comes at the sort of dead center of of this journey, the, the, the quest, the ring quest, but also because it comes at the sort of tail end for Aragorn of his pre-kingship life. And, and Theoden is uh, the ruler of one of the second, well, not one of the second mightiest kingdom in, in Middle-earth uh, beyond Gondor, or kingdom of men, I should say, beyond Gondor. Um, but it is also uh, uh, one of the only ones that actually still has a king. <laughs> so Gondor has is a kingdom, but she lacks a king. Rohan has a king. Uh, Rohan is a kingdom with a king. Uh, and so Aragorn is passing through this place that he's already passed through before, admittedly. But he's passing through this place on, on his last sort of stop before taking up the crown in Gondor and seeing a king in action. Um, and Theoden is meant to stand in for a king who is badly failing, 
badly, badly failing um, in every single imaginable way. Uh, Theoden is not fulfilling his, his duty to his people. Um, he, he is not, um, and, and this is something we're going to talk about until you all fucking hate me. Um, he is not fulfilling his duty to his wards. Uh, to his, his duty of care that he owes to Eowyn is roundly unfulfilled. And this is a crucial part of, of, of uh, Tolkien's criticism of, uh, of Theoden, uh, believe it or not, is actually the fact that he treats Eowyn so, so poorly. Um, and uh, which is why I always think it's kind of interesting that there's this kind of lack of resolution there. Um, but Aragorn has to see this. Uh, he has to see what a bad king looks like so that he can later go on uh, and and, and become the good king he was meant to be to, to kind of steal and bastardize the weird Elrond line there um, from Return of the King. Um, but it is absolutely crucial that, that, that as we go through this, we understand that Theoden isn't meant to be just a man. Uh, he's not just a, an uncle and a father uh, and a guy who, uh, you know, may or may not occasionally command a cavalry. He is a man who is um, spiritually and morally required to give, like, it sounds cheap and shitty, but to give back to the people that he he rules over. Um, and and it is of absolute um, inestimable importance that we understand that he, when we first meet him, is absolutely not doing that. Yeah, one thing I was going to say is, as I was kind of prepping for this and next week's episode, where we're going to just be doing more Edoras, uh, Theoden stuff, is like Aragorn is kind of good cop and bad cop with himself when talking to or about Theoden. Um, we'll talk about it this week about how Theoden was going to uh, execute Grima, um, but and then Aragorn stops him, which I, I know we'll have thoughts about. But then, like minutes after that, it's Aragorn also bending his knee and you know pledging loyalty to Theoden. Um, in scenes we're going to talk about next week, um, he kind of admonishes Theoden for not riding to war and instead riding for Helm's Deep. But then he turns around and tells Gimli, "Is like actually I get the decision. I, it saved him in the past. Um, he's just trying to protect his people." Like, you see him kind of weighing both sides of every decision Theoden makes, even though it's not his decision to make, something Theoden very explicitly tells Aragorn a couple times in this movie. Um, but I do like that part, how it is kind of his training wheels. And we basically see Aragorn like, if I was Theoden, what would I do in this moment? And it's very, very explicit, um, maybe too much so, but it's like, it's not even subtext. It's very much the text of these scenes coming up. Yeah, so so I like basically a hundred percent agree with you on that one, um, and and I think like the other thing that's really interesting to me about this fact that we see, you know, I you know I'm an asshole, so I would call it Aragorn's kind of flip flopping, but like you do see Aragorn kind of weighing up the pros and cons here, um, and the reason why this is interesting is because even if it's not explicitly doing it, um, the movie is kind of encouraging us as the audience to think like kings i guess um and it's it's i would say giving undue sympathy to theoden um but i you know i kind of feel like the whole movie has undue sympathy towards theoden uh but but it, it is basically being like neither of these choices are inherently wrong uh and uh and aragorn is wise enough to see that um, even if Theoden himself, who's sort of the lesser man, the lesser king in this situation, um, can't even really be fucking bothered to see Aragorn's side of the argument. Uh, and that's that's also sort of a, a key kind of setup for uh, later in uh, Return of the King, uh, when we see Denethor. Uh, and Denethor's method of rulership, and Denethor, of course, not being a king, but Denethor also sort of brooking no opposition and not really being willing to listen to 
I hate to be like the other side because that's so simplistic, but not really being able to listen to the sort of wise and good counselors around him because he's like, fuck it, my way or the highway. Um, and so having Aragorn in the films here really play that sort of <laughs> third way guy, the Tony Blair ass kind of behavior is is actually kind of a really good way of integrating this, this uh, need, uh, sort of feudal need of kings to listen to good counsel when it presents itself. One of the things, really sort of this discussion piece is just to kind of lay out the the importance of thinking about feudalism uh, and, and kings within the context of the Lord of the Rings, not as the sort of liberal Democrats, and I don't mean that like the political party, but like the, the sort of liberal post-enlightenment Democrats that, that we all more or less hopefully are. Um, but to think about it with this sort of respect that is due the intellectual tradition of monarchy, politically a fucking nightmare. Uh, get rid of it. But intellectually, it actually does have a very sort of robust background and and we need to go into it with that sort of mindset and uh, not sympathy for, but like respect towards uh, the whole concept. Um, especially because I think it heightens the drama for us to acknowledge the fact that there is this um, immense sort of literature justifying it and sort of immense like spiritual and emotional um, uh, investment in maintaining the right of kings to to be kings that heightens the drama of someone like Theoden making the decisions that he's making because he's constantly having to weigh it against not just like am I doing what's right for my people in this sort of cynical way like oh I need to get votes at the midterms or whatever but in the very genuine way of all of my ancestors all of my forefathers have had to think about taking care of these people and their ancestors. And is the thing that I am doing right now absolutely correct for myself or for my kingdom? And am I able to like sublimate the self essentially into the needs of uh, the kingdom, uh, which is what Tolkien argues is absolutely necessary, essentially abolish the individual in, in favor of having a king who represents the kingdom, something Theoden himself is never able to do. Um, and is, of course, I, I, you know, from my very limited knowledge of Game of Thrones, something I don't think a single king, maybe, oh, who's the balding dude? Uh, the balding dude who gets nerfed by the like pussy ghosts, uh, not the gay brother, but the other one. <laughs> Stannis. That's the one. Um, I feel like he's the one who gets the closest, but all the other kings in Game of Thrones, uh, I feel like never get remotely close to being like, I'm putting myself away for now. And it's the interest of everybody else. That's my concern here. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, oh, oh you just opened a floodgate with uh, Game of Thrones <laughs> and A Song of Ice and Fire there. Um, I think that very specific point is best illustrated, and I'm going to mostly reference the books here as a touchstone, but it's generally depicted in the show, is when Stannis rides or uh, sails north and saves Jon Snow and the Night's Watch from the Wildling and Mance Raider and his, you know, uh, mission to get the wilding south of the wall. There's this absolutely uh, killer line from the books that I'm going to paraphrase and basically murder here. <laughs> and it's basically uh, Sir Davo Seaworth, the Onion Knight, um, who was played by Liam Cunningham quite well. And Liam Cunningham has great politics, which I want to shout out right here. Mm. But um, he was the one who kind of convinced Stannis to go. And when Stannis is explaining it to Jon Snow, he's like, you know, Sir Davos had it right. Um, I had the cart before the hearse. Oh, and now I know I'm going to butcher the line. Um, what's it called? Oh, I thought I had to win the throne to save the kingdom, but Davos told me I had to save the kingdom to win the throne, and that's why I sailed north instead of, you know, making another attempt at King's Landing and the Iron Throne. 
Um, and I think that generally speaks to, or that sort of thinking rather, is kind of why I gravitated so hard to A Song of Ice and Fire. Um, granted, no one's you know debating theories of monarchy and kingship these days, like you kind of mentioned, but all the politics are very much embroiled in that. Um, and I like how you uh, you called it the noblest uh, uh, obligation, or the you know you said it in a nice way that sounded very smart and astute. Um, but uh, the way we kind of talk about it in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, um, specifically from the Not a Cast podcast that I'm going to be joining, is the feudal contract. And basically, you know, like the peasants or the small folk, as they're called, are allowed to work the land and keep their homes, um, you know, do all that stuff. Um, and then if someone invades from outside, it's the king's responsibility or the lord's responsibility, depending on where you are, to, you know, ensure that your small folk are protected. Um, and in exchange, you're also going to pay taxes. And if the lord calls his banners and goes to war, you know, your able-bodied men will, you know, be participating in that. But it is very much viewed as transactional. So it's not just a one way you owe fealty to the king mm. um, or the Lord. And that's all there is to it. And part of the um, part of the thrust of the later parts of the books, which are not adapted really at all, um, are the differences between two lords, one Eddard Stark or Ned Stark, played by Sean Bean, and the other is Tywin Lannister. Um, Tywin Lannister was someone who only viewed it as that one-way relationship. Um, so when he dies on the shitter, thanks to a crossbow bolt from Tyrion, like everything in the Westerlands and all the rule that the Lannisters had built kind of starts crumbling um, because like there was only a one-way relationship there. And then the one that they actually owe fealty to was Tywin Lannister, but he wasn't there anymore. Just his incestuous, insane twin sibling or <laughs> children. And then uh, Tyrion, who was a murderer and also a fugitive at this point. Um, compared to Ned Stark, who dies very, very early in uh, the story, but because of his legacy, he was the one who invited all his all the lords to come and sup with him like once a month. He would give them a high place at his table. He would ask them what their concerns were. Um, and then he'd also do that within his own household. Like he would have his like head groomsmen come and tell him what's going on in the stables or what's going on in the town right outside Winterfell. And because of this, even though he died and you know the North is even taken over by the Boltons and you know Rob Stark is murdered, you still see as Bran is making his way north of the wall people will just be nice to him because that's what Ned Stark was to them. He like treated them not as equals, but as someone worthy of respect and dignity. And because of that, you know, many of the Stark children were able to survive on the legacy of Ned Stark. Um, and Ned Stark himself is though never a King. He is kind of, he's trying to, uh, or he exists to accentuate the point that just because you're a good, good person, a good leader, and a good soldier, those things themselves may not make you a good king. Um, as we see, we see him handle his small affairs quite diligently, but once he starts making big uh, national political decisions, um, he ends up less ahead, um, and that kicks off the War of the Five Kings. And I think that gets into the other aspect of A Song of Ice and Fire I'd want to talk about is just kind of where the various kings' powers come from and, like, what do you know? How do they view wielding it? Um, so Robert Baratheon, the Dead King, um, 
he was a great warrior and that's why he became king. And then he turned out to just be the most shit ass <laughs> a politician of all time. Like he, he was absentee most of the time. He's just like, I'll let my counselors decide what to do. I'm just going to go fuck and, you know, hunt and <laughs> just, you know, kind of be a, be a, a alpha male. That's all he ever wanted to do. Um, and then you look at his younger brothers who both claimed the throne, uh, Stannis Baratheon, the rightful heir. Um, and the one I kind of liked the most of the bunch, um, he had some sense of duty. He he had some sense of we need to, you know, do right by the people and, you know, the law say I should be king. But also he was just a grump and a dick and no one liked him. <laughs> um, so he had like the smallest following. He had the lowest amount of loyalty between lords. No one would listen just because Stannis said something, you know, um, they just kind of blew him off. Whereas his younger brother, Renly, who had no claim to the Iron Throne, he was beloved. You know, everyone loved him. He was happy, cheerful. He knew everyone's name. He participated in, um, you know, dances and uh, all sorts of frivolities. And he was just kind of a person of the people. And because of this, um, he was able to, you know, claim the throne. Uh, well, not claim the throne, but, you know, make a play at the throne. And he actually had a really large army behind him, an army that was more invested in having like fake melees and, you know, little tourneys here or there and parade their wealth across, you know, Westeros. But, you know, he was kind of killed by a shadow assassin baby ah, that came out of Melisandre. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and th then you have, uh, you know, you have uh, Joffrey Baratheon, who is the bastard of Cersei and Jaime Lannister, but people assumed he was Robert's son. And just having those trappings of power, which include sitting on the Iron Throne, ruling from King's Landing, wearing that crown on your head, um, that projected a strength. Um, not a strength per se, but projected the image of kingship, which is basically the reason people followed. And also because... People said he was Robert's son, so of course he's the king. Everyone else is a usurper or a rebel. Um, you know, a lot of people don't think about politics as much as we think we'd like to or as much as we think they would. Um, they're just like, oh, yeah, he's the guy. He's the next in line, and now he's king, and that's cool, and whatever. It's a whole Joe Biden is president kind of now you know, <laughs> sort of situation. Um, obvi obviously, he was an awful king, and I'm not comparing Joe Biden to Joffrey Baratheon. Uh, Biden's clearly <laughs> Holy worse. Holy shit, same initials. But <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, shit. <laughs> they are the same. Uh, <laughs> um, but And then you have someone like Rob Stark, whose kingship arrives completely out of rebellion um, and a, a wish to succeed from the Seven Kingdoms. And he has a lot of the Ned Stark stuff. He is honorable. He is smart. He's even-handed with his people. But we even see him get kind of caught up in, you know, part of ruling, and especially when you're a king, is, you know, ha making a right match in terms of marriage and having, you know, heirs that will follow you. And the books are a little bit different than the show. I won't get into the details, <laughs> but Rob makes a similar mistake in that he doesn't, he tries to be honorable the way his father would in the way he treats women, but that kind of makes him, what's it called? push away the like political concerns of his marriage. And that sets up a domino effect that leads to him getting murdered. Um, and I don't want to go too much longer with the Song of Ice and Fire one, but I do got to uh, men mention Mance Raider, who is as most as he, he is a king because he became a king to the people. 
Um, he was the king beyond the wall and king of the wildlings. Um, but like he didn't have a crown or there is no throne north of the wall. Uh, but it was just simply he went around and convinced everyone north of the wall that, hey, we have to get south of the wall. The White Walkers are coming. This winter is going to kill us all. And we can only do this if we band together. And a lot of people, you know, some signed on just like, OK, this is smart. I'll follow you. But, you know, there are a bunch of warriors and people who think they're leaders and the king types north of the wall. And Mance, you know, either had to convince them, had to, you know, give them money or jewels or whatever he had. Or sometimes he had to just fight them. And either, you know, claim victory over them or by killing, you know, a leader, his the other people that were following the now dead leader would come to his side now. Um, so um, I know I'm doing a really poor job and I'm not really talking about this in any kind of political theory framework. Um, but a lot of what makes those stories work is that we're seeing seven or eight different takes on ruling on kingship on what it means to have a feudal contract with your um subservient people whether they're you know wild or free folk or wildlings or just your everyday peasants and kind of how that all exists within not a political vacuum but with all the machinations of war of disease of famine all those things working its way through the continent and how different people are tackling that and i think that's a big draw of those books um, and I'm kind of just trailing off and <laughs> stopping there because otherwise we would be here for another two hours. Thundering of hooves, the quiet but proud horns, the cut across three, hang on, four, horsed riders, and the pan to a shining city on the hill. It's Edinburgh. No, it's Boston. It's Rome. These are the only behilled cities I know of. Uh, please forgive me. Anyways, let's go to the single best location intro drop in this entire movie. Edoras and the Golden Hall of Medesos. There dwells Theoden, king of Rohan. Record scratch, cut to Theoden snoozing in his chair, and an Eowyn dub. Yep, that's me. You might be wondering how I got here. The answer, of course, is that kings suck. Will you do nothing, she asks, and I should mention that we have seen Eowyn twice so far, and this is her second time crying on screen. Feminism, thy name is the Lord of the Rings films. Anyways, no, of course Theoden won't do anything. There's no threat of rebellion to force him to action. Classic power imbalance. Someone get Middle-Earth Montesquieu up in this bitch stat. Cut back to Gandalf announcing that he and the three hunters will receive no warm welcome here, conveniently admitting that he did very much steal Theoden's best car, and up, up, up they go, direct to Adoras. We cut back to Theodred's pallid face, and yup, Eowyn crying once again. Here's Grima. 
Actually, I would love to know who Middle Earth's Johnny Carson equivalent is. And I feel like if you are a person who's like naturally quite funny, please God do that bit for me and then send me a million of them. It will sustain me for life. But I digress. Peep Eowyn's white dress here, no doubt a reference to her latterly bestowed white lady epithet, which, yeah, we'll deal with that one later. Then comes Brad Dorif to chew the scenery and just generally be incredible. Theodred's dead. Theod dead? Anyways, it's sad. <laughs> Grima feigns sympathy, touches Eowyn in a nauseating imitation of a comforting gesture, and Eowyn responds, Leave me alone, snake! Hey, isn't that the dude in Metal Gear Solid? See? <laughs> I can learn. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Time for just a fucking excellent performance from Brad Dorif. We'll just listen to it in full here. But you are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness in the bitter watches of the night when all your life seems to shrink the walls of your bower closing in about you are hatched to trample some wild thing. So fair. So cold. Like a morning with pale spring still clinging to winter's chill. Yeah, so this is one of those moments when Peter Jackson's horror sensibilities really just elevate the whole thing. We'll speak in greater detail about this later, but Christ, this is a masterfully terrifying scene. Also, I literally think it's a misogynist hate crime to make me talk about anything other than Eowyn here, but I will suffer through it because I'm nothing if not committed and disciplined. So, in brief... Eowyn buries out of her chambers, goes to the uh, veranda of Metaselt, peep the beautiful filigree on the doors here, and then listen to a very loud sound of tearing, which alerts us to the fact that one of the Rohir banners has been pulled away from its flagpole. You might call this a touch on the nose, but I will counter that it is absolutely not, because the fucking incredible truth is that this wasn't planned. The banner seriously did just rip off when they were doing this shot. Majestic. So, the banner flutters up into the air, landing at the outer wall of Edoras, just in time for Aragorn to make some meaningful eye contact with it upon his entry. The boys arrived, are greeted at the door by, appropriately, Hama the door warden, who deserves a campaign for justice, but not in this here recap. Their weapons are begrudgingly handed over, except for Gandalf's staff, because the old bullshitter either pulls a fast one on the dumb provincial guards... Or, perhaps because the Rohirrim are more apt to doing the right thing than we might initially think, depending on your interpretation of this scene. Look, I can't do this next scene any justice, and I really won't insult you all by trying to. We know what happens. Thaden, Gandalf, Saruman, Grima. It's spectacular. Not just a high point of this movie, but a high point of cinema generally. It's a marriage of excellent acting, beautifully crafted practical effects, and smart, smart directing. Nothing even comes close. After that, there's a touching, if unnecessary, moment with Theoden saying, I know your face, at Eowyn, a motif that will be repeated throughout the subsequent six hours of story, which, blah, whatever. Then, there's some interesting politicking off of Strider. Theoden's prepared to kick Grima's ass five ways to Friday, and to do so in public before all of Edoras. But Aragorn intervenes with a plea for clemency for the little snake. 
too much blood has already been spilled thanks to him. Which, uh, what the fuck, dude? Like, Eowyn's <laughs> literally right there after just having been sexually harassed by him. Whatever, King. But once Aragorn's delivered this weird plea for clemency, he does note that questioning the king so prominently after his long hibernation is not exactly a good look, and not really doing much to rebuild Theoden's people's faith in him. So Aragorn does something rather canny. He kneels before Theoden. We'll talk more about why this is significant later, but this is yet another step on Aragorn's path to proper kingship. Take note. All this done, Theoden finally thinks to ask the really important question. Where is Theodred? Where is my son? Our scenes open with a small Gandalf narration, which I just want to flag that I really love the line about Theoden's mind being overthrown, a turn of phrase I use a lot whenever I can. <laughs> yeah, same. Um, I also just want to say uh, it's a weird bit of like disclaimer or apologetics, whatever here, but if it if I'm being oddly quiet about this line, uh, despite having hyped up my hatred for it for the last however 30 or so episodes of this podcast, it's because we're going to hit this in the Tolkien token. Tolkien? Fuck! <laughs> Tolkien, Tolkien book section, uh, and I have not lost my uh, furious, vitriolic uh, hatred towards this line. It's just coming. I'm being good and following the agenda. <laughs> but his little setup takes us into Eowyn, trying to tell her Uncle King his son has passed. As we'd expect based on our earlier scene with Theoden, he just doesn't do anything. He looks like he's just going to fall asleep while his world burns down around him, which... I guess, mood. <laughs> the, the real meat of the scene, following a quick interstitial with Gandalf and company just outside Meduseld, is the confrontation between Eowyn and Grima, who notices Eowyn mourning the now-dead Theodred. <sighs> Grima slithers up to Eowyn, placing his hand on her shoulder trying to comfort her before Eowyn takes a step back. Hoping not to aggravate my co-host here, but I just really, really, really like the words in this script at this part. Grima's response is just so, so good, mostly because of the way Brad Dorif drips out the words. You are alone. Who knows what you've spoken to the darkness? So fair, so cold, like a morning of pale spring still clinging to winter's chill. Just incredibly poetic that feels in line with the film's dialogue broadly, but being an especially flourished monologue at that. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so it sound, sounds brilliant because it's just a smash cut of a couple of Tolkien lines. Uh, so the first one is, uh, who knows what she spoke alone in the darkness when all the world seemed, so, seemed to close in around her, a bower to trammel some wild thing. There's the bitter watches in the night bit. Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to do that off the top of my head. I also do literally have that quote on a poster with A.O 
and looking moody. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's great art by uh, Loretti, uh, who is on Inprint and whatever the other major fan art uh, sites are. And it is just a fucking beautiful painting. Uh, and I recommend everyone gets it. Um, but that line is spoken by Gandalf in Return of the King. Um, after Eowyn has defeated the Witch King and when she's laid up in the Houses of Healing, um, AMR and his infinite... Uh, emotional intelligence is like you know i knew she was sad because we were all kind of sad because our king was acting like a twat but i didn't know she was like suicide sad uh and and he was like you know i i kind of knew she maybe had a thing for aragorn but i didn't really think like him rejecting her would be that bad um and uh you know there's kind of a bit of back and forth between uh, aragorn Aomer and Gandalf about Eowyn's state of mind and like whose responsibility it is. And conveniently, they all absolve themselves of any responsibility for taking care of this uh, 24-year-old woman who uh, has basically been uh, treated like a fucking lapdog her entire life. Uh, but uh, Gandalf comes out with this line of who knows what she spoke alone in the darkness. Um, and it is possibly one of the most beautiful and insightful lines about the condition of loneliness in patriarchy that I think has ever been committed to writing by a man, uh, by someone who isn't like Virginia Woolf. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it, it really gets to the kind of core uh, of Eowyn's character in the book uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I think, one, it's deeply important that it is Gandalf, uh, you know, one of the wisest figures in Middle-earth who speaks this line um, because it... It uncovers, perhaps incidentally on Tolkien's behalf, the fact that these men who dedicate themselves to lore and to knowing tactics of war and to knowing, to being able to list off all the names of kings and to, you know, knowing the land around them can't be fucking bothered to ask sister, daughter, niece, hey, how you doing? I know you've got a guy perving on you 24-7, but are you okay? Uh, and none of them can be fucked. And then at the end of it, they try and intellectualize it well with like, oh, well, she's just a cold bitch. And, you know, how could anybody have possibly known what she was thinking? Uh, and this is a much funnier bit in the book because it's essentially an instant smash cut to the Houses of the Healing uh, in a subsequent chapter when it's Eowyn and Faramir chatting uh, and Faramir gets a read on her almost instantly and does the absolutely fucking radical feminist ally thing of asking her, how are you? Uh, and... <laughs> Kel Surprise, uh, she has some thoughts on how she is. Uh, so, so that's where that one line comes, and that is just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and then the second one, which is the so fair, so cold, like a morning of pale spring, still clean, clinging to winter's chill, which is the line in the movie, is taken from uh, Aragorn seeing Eowyn for the first time. So actually in the scene, but in the book. Uh, and the line in the book, and I had to get it out because I wanted to, to get it right, is Aragorn beheld the lady Eowyn and thought her fair. Fair and cold, like a morning of pale spring that has not yet come to womanhood. And this potentially might be the most insane thing I'm ever going to say on this podcast. And I realize I really set the bar quite high on that. But I think there's a huge problem with them having swapped womanhood out for winter. Um, so the movie uses winter's chill and and the book uses womanhood. Uh, because I actually think it alters, fundamentally alters the meaning of the line. Um, when the book uses the contrast of springtime and womanhood it's springtime is almost a secondary issue to to the issue of womanhood um springtime crucially especially for anybody who's ever been on or near a farm is uh, a season of birth um it is uh, you see springtime lambs uh, you see you know the the sort of 
young animals on a farm tend to be born in in the spring. Uh, and so, so spring is heavily associated with birth and fertility and, and the sort of coming up of new life uh, in the world. And so when she is compared to a cold spring morning, she's not being compared to the spring itself, but rather the youth and the like naissance, the like recent birth of spring that spring holds as a sort of uh, like uh, important kind of trait of the season. Uh, And the fact that she is then compared to not yet come to womanhood means that she's young. She's really young. Um, And because she's really young, all of the kind of suffering she's been made to endure and all the pain and hardship that's on her is magnified tenfold because she is young and because she has just been born in the spring and has not yet experienced the warm light of summer, the 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 sort of whispery nostalgia of autumn, uh, and then again, the sort of cold uh, uh, duration of winter. She doesn't yet realize that there is a, a routine cycle to the seasons and that that this this pain that she's feeling isn't going to last forever. That's what that means. It, it means that she is, all of her pain and suffering is legitimate, but she hasn't yet had the experience in her life to know that this isn't all it's going to be for her. And right now she genuinely feels because effectively she was only born yesterday that that this is all life is for her. And that that having that detail included in her first introduction is crucial because it sets up her entire plot um, and and it sets up this sort of uh, equal parts futility and also desperation of what Eowyn is. Um, and by changing it to winter, what they're actually doing is saying she's a stone cold bitch. Um, and they're overemphasizing the seasonal element to it uh, by comparing her to uh, the, the, the winter. Uh, there's, you know, the line is still clinging to a winter's chill. It's saying, you know, she could be nice and springtimey uh, and like a lovely little girl as she should be if she weren't such a stone cold bitch and if she weren't clinging to being such a stone cold bitch. Um, and it takes this line from being an immensely descriptive and, and deeply sort of incisive statement on who and what Aon's character is into being a pervert being a pervert uh, and also setting up uh, Aon as a stone cold bitch, which I don't think is an accurate read on her uh, and, and, and kind of obfuscating the, the sort of uh, inherent tragedy of her sadness, which is that like it's totally valid and obviously a total, totally inescapable thing for her, but it's also basically manufactured by the people around her not really, you know, taking care of her as they are obligated to. Uh, so yes, so that is, I think, me plunging the absolute depths of my insanity here to find something to bitch about in an otherwise absolutely 100% flawless scene. <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty insane, even for you. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, that's great. I, um, I'm, I'm not here to defend the scene, but I think at certain point, um, I just stopped interpreting words, and it was just Brad Dourif going like words, words, words. Yeah. Um, and it was all kind of just flowery nonsense. I actually didn't know <laughs> the exact wording until I read the script for this episode. Like, I didn't realize there was Bauer and Trammel, and yeah. like I just. At a certain point, it's like, you are alone. And then he just starts kind of spinning around her and, you know, <laughs> stuff happens. <laughs> I'm so, I, I mean, uh, because of my own particular insanities, like as much as I love everything about this, you know, this isn't a scene I think about quite a lot. Yeah. Um, Which is fair because it is meant to just be kind of a mostly nothing scene. 
<laughs> yeah, it's basically there to kind of pace out everything else that's happening around yeah. it. But um, I do like that they're actually pulling some of Tolkien's words for it. And at least in the divorced of interpretation <laughs> sense, I think they are words that sound really good strung together. Yeah. Um, but I'm also at this point someone who's partial because then when I hear winter is I think winter is coming in house dark. So that automatically kind of like activates my lizard brain. It wouldn't have done this in 2001 or 2002. But um, every time I hear winter, I think things just sound cooler that way. Yeah, but that's fair. I think your point is very, very well taken. I, I had never considered that before. Um, yeah, I spend a normal time amount of time thinking about AON. This is why I have these takes. <laughs> Uh, but the camera here also has a lot of fun, rotating around the characters as Grima delivers his speech, like a boa constrictor <sighs> coiling up around its prey, getting ready for the death squeeze. Even God. the way Dorif is moving his mouth feels like he's hissing out the words. His metaphorical forked tongue will be called out later by Gandalf. That is such a fucking great catch. I never in a million years would have got that. And I also wonder if this kind of comes into, like, I feel this entire scene is like so informed by Peter Jackson being a horror director. And I wonder if some of that comes from that kind of horror background. But that is such a great catch. Like, that's totally what's happening. And never in a million years would I put the put two and two together on that one. <laughs> the films then do their bread and butter. Two extreme close-ups of the actors with tears in Miranda Otto's eyes. And I guess this is like the fifth time we're seeing her crying already. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> the camera work and pacing makes Eowyn's last, your words are poison, feel cathartic, like an actual win in the moment. Again, uh, recalling to my first time through with this movie and not really understanding what Grima and or Saruman did to Theoden, it almost felt like here Grima was about to put Eowyn under a spell, not unlike the king, but her own strength wins out in the end. In retrospect, I know that's absolutely not what's happening, but kind of having that like margin of interpretation and not having everything explained to me allowed me to actually fill in some of the gaps or build on to the scene in a way that if everything was completely spelled out and they told me exactly what was happening with Theoden at the moment, I might not have otherwise. I really like that interpretation as well. Cause I, cause I think that actually gets to in a way in a roundabout way. Cause, cause as we'll get into much later, I think the magic bullshit is bad um, it, with the fan and stuff. And I think it absolves some of his very real guilt. Um, but I think here, that take that you've got, I think that's really good because it reintroduces the sort of strength of character that Eowyn is shown to have in in the the books. Um, and I don't want to say that she's like resistant to bullshit because I think that's kind of reductive. Um, and she's definitely not resistant to bullshit. She loves <laughs> bullshit. Um, but like she has a, her head screwed on in a way that Theoden doesn't. Uh, and apparently in a way that even Aomer doesn't. Um, and and that sort of strength of personality and commitment and, and sort of discipline or discipline and commitment to doing what is right and what is good is so strong that it is recognized by her people, which is also something that we'll come back to later uh, closer to Helm's Deep uh, in my Justice for Hama campaign. Um, but having that here and having that, like if she is quite literally resisting magic, um, which I think is a, a really great way to kind of counterbalance the some of the weaker parts of uh, that that whole magic element in, in this film. If she is, then holy shit, she's fucking baller. Um, she is fucking baller. Uh, and Theoden sucks even more. <laughs> so I think that is awesome. Um, 
And I also guess for me, it's also interesting because it's kind of part of this film's increased attention on Eowyn, which is, again, something I go back and forth on, on whether or not I like. Like, on the one hand, great, uh, love having more Eowyn hashtag content. On the other hand, you know, uh, it's fine. Um, <laughs> but in the books, Eowyn and Grima actually never really interact, uh, certainly not face-to-face like this. Uh, and that is something that they don't include. Uh, part of that, of course, is because the books are always told by from a man perspective, uh, whether it's the the hobbits, uh, whether it's Aragorn, the three hunters, uh, whether it is... Oh, hang on. Actually, that's not true. Uh, so we get this third person omniscient in uh, in The Steward and the King, uh, in the bit where uh, Eowyn and Faramir are being shagging lads. Uh, and, and that mm-hmm. is probably the most like neutral gender neutral point of view that we get in the book Uh, and that is that is okay sorry we'll come back to that in however many years um (laughs) but uh for the most part the this book this book these books uh are told from the point of view of men and so ao is sort of an inaccessible uh mind there um but i think it actually is kind of nice to ramp up uh the the kind of evilness and spookiness of grima um, it then kind of makes it funny to me that they don't really pay that off in the way they should because they ju- do just kind of let him scatter, which makes the crime, I would say, of Aragorn being like clemency for this dude that much worse. Um, but it also opens up a chance, which is why I go back and forth on this. Um, it opens up a chance for them to kind of fuck up Eowyn's character in a really like unique and, and slightly annoying way uh, because they are interested in oscillating between crying Eowyn, who's meant to represent the sort of tears of woman, I guess she is like, uh, who was it Mary, Mary Magdalene? Yeah. Mary Magdalene who wept at Jesus's feet. She's kind of playing this role and also playing badass warrior with a sword role. And neither of those things are really Eowyn. <laughs> like those are two, I guess, kind of fine tropes to play with, with characters, but they're not really Eowyn's tropes. Um, and, as I've been going back through in advance of this fucking insane persuasion adaptation, the Dakota, not Dakota <laughs> Fanning, Dakota Johnson one. Every time I hear something about the, like anything new about this fucking adaptation, I go slightly more insane. Um, but I've been going back through all of the different adaptations of Jane Austen. So I did the really brilliant Karen Hines persuasion. Uh, a couple days ago, I was doing the uh, Emma Thompson, Kate Winslet, Sense and Sensibility last night, um, and I'm kind of trying to formulate my like thesis of Aon through Jane Austen characters because I feel like even though a lot of the adaptations get Jane Austen's women characters laughably wrong, particularly Lizzie Bennet and Emma Woodhouse, um, they are they are kind of a better touchstone for getting those kind of archetypes of of women out there. Um, and I'm going back and forth, uh, and listeners, write in if you have a take, because I'd love to hear it. But I'm going back and forth between um, Eowyn is either Anne Elliot from Persuasion, which is uh, to say she is a very sort of quiet, uh, giving, benevolent character who allows herself essentially to be taken advantage of because her first and, and foremost concern is always with the safety and protection and care of the people around her. Uh, so in Persuasion, Anne Elliot obviously gives up her her this greatest love and joy and happiness because she's trying to keep everybody around her happy all the time. Uh, and it's not to say that she doesn't have a spine or that she doesn't have thoughts or feelings of her own, but she always makes those that important part of her personality 
subservient to, well, what do the people around me need? Uh, and that's very representative of Eowyn and, and, and something actually Eowyn articulates quite a lot throughout the books, which is this like, she literally says, why must I always be the one that is chosen? Um, but then there's this other pole of her personality, which makes her Marianne Dashwood uh, from Sense and Sensibility. And and Marianne is a fucking bottle rocket. Uh, she is like this sort of incredibly emotional, uh, you know, very young. Like you do get she's very young. She behaves like a teenager. She ricochets back and forth. She loves these massive like uh, sort of in your face exuberant displays of emotion and and can't really keep her emotions in check uh, even when she really needs to uh, and, and sort of loves the high romance of the world. And Eowyn is also very much that. Um, but she doesn't cry. <laughs> Book Eowyn doesn't cry uh, ever, really. Uh, she may shed a tear, um, but she doesn't cry. Um, oh, she does. She does shed a tear. That is it in The King and the Steward. Again, uh, man, that's a hell of a chapter. Um, but, you know, she, she she her poles of behavior are not stone cold bitch who wields a sword and kills things uh, and woman who weeps a lot. They are someone who is consciously and actively giving up what she wants in life because she knows that she needs to defend all of the people around her because the men are useless. Uh, and someone who desperately wants to live a life that is greater than the life that she's been given and knows that actually she does very much deserve so much more than she has. Um, and those two things come out as, you know, her being quiet and reserved and and a bit gruff, um, to be honest. She's, she's kind of bitchy there. Aragorn. Uh, and then, um, you know, her desperately needing these overt displays of, of life and vitality, which is her writing from Dunharrow and her saying, you know, the thing that she fears is a cage. And then it, all of the steward and the king as a chapter, which is just her and Faramir, who are the worst two drama queens in, in the, these books kind of egging each other on for seven pages or whatever. Um, she's not whatever the fuck they're getting here. Um, and I realized that literally five minutes ago, I was like, I'm plunging the depths of insanity on this take. Uh, but now I've done it again. So there it is. Uh, Anne is, or Eowyn is Anne Elliot and Marianne Dashwood in one. There we go. As someone who's not familiar with either of any of those works, uh, <laughs> that was very interesting. Um, I can't wait to watch this new. Actually, I don't think I'll watch the new Persuasion thing. That's I just generally so don't watch things on Netflix if I can avoid it. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's all very interesting. I guess all I can do is tease that next time out, uh, we're going to take, we're going to talk about women. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, no, we're, we're going to talk about women in uh, Tolkien's works, uh, women in fantasy, and kind of the different arch archetypes, archetypes, whatever, that they kind of fall under and how that all works. So um, stay tuned next time where we, you know, come down women, good or bad. <laughs> it's the broads episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, man. Well, now I have to try to move on to something more serious. But... Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to pretend we didn't say the last 20 seconds of stuff we just <laughs> said. Uh, but uh, as we return back to our three, now four hunters, as they approach the Golden Hall, uh, one thing Emily really uh, flagged that I really love is uh, the banner, the horse, uh, the white horse on the black field that's on one of the poles outside of Meduseld, and it rips off and blows away. Um, and that was all unchoreographed, which I did not actually know until, or not unchoreographed, but unscripted rather, um, which I didn't know until Emily brought it up to me a little bit ago. 
Uh, yeah, this is like, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about like the artifice of cinema. And this is kind of one of these wonderful marriages of like the artifice of cinema and the like organic realness, the naturalism, I guess, of theater. Because like, what the fuck kind of brilliant moment that the like the the I mean the heavy symbolism of the the banner of Rohan the image the heraldic image of the white horse of Rohan uh, ripping off as they're filming this one shot of Eowyn running and crying and realizing that uh, her king's a fucking useless dipshit um, and uh, you know having that line up uh, to just rip perfectly like you gotta think that on set that day they were all just like fucking doing lottery, buying lottery cards because the like chances of getting a shot that perfect by accident. Oof, love it. Um, and it's something we don't really get much of anymore. Like this, like willingness to accept a chance of imperfection for the sake of potentially having good art. Like everything is so stage managed to fuck. Uh, the, like I can't imagine any of the major movies or any of the major TV shows that have been produced in the last like five, 10 years ever having room margin for error like this that would allow something like that to happen and i think that's why i get so much more hyped about this stupid fucking flag because it like it just seems like a kind of relic of a bygone day of like filmmaking yeah it feels like like a good omen like the fact that this happened and they were able to capture it and work it into the actual finished product feels like oh yeah we know we're onto something good if this shit is happening like things are great uh yeah, and I don't think this would happen in regular movies because if it was Marvel or Star Wars, that would definitely be a fake flagpole with a <laughs> fake flag and it would look really fake. And um, no, I think this is part of the benefit of like having real sets and doing things um, in a manner in which these imperfections can play out kind of organically or naturally. Um, and obviously the banner ripping off and flying away that that's an accident but then they actually took that and then you know had the shot of aragorn passing through the gates with the what wood perimeter around Edoras, and he sees it actually fall to the ground and kind of turn it over um and he kind of gives it a look as he warily looks back up towards meduseld like they actually work that in a way that it all feels really really of a piece Um, The only thing I would disagree with you on is I'm not sure if they were celebrating that day because it just looked really fucking windy. So it's very (laughs) possible that everyone was just miserable on set that day Um, or whether that's wind machines or not. But they really definitely had it turned up quite a bit. Uh, But yeah, I think this is like an impeccable moment. And this is why working with tangible things in the process of creating movies just feels so much more rewarding. Not saying that this happens all the time, but even the chance that it can is, you know, is great. It allows these kind of great moments to happen. You know, Aragorn breaking his toe, the one that's way more sighted than this is also works in that same kind of fashion. It just, this one hasn't been memed to death where it's kind of annoying to talk about. I'm going to do it. I'm going to meme this fucking thing to death. (laughs) Oh, oh, we can do we can do this together. That'll be the legacy of this podcast. Yes. <laughs> Our company makes their way up the hill of Edoras, a cemetery walk through an untrusting community. Aragorn spies Eowyn on the steps of Meduseld, only for him to glance away and back to see she has disappeared. Hama, door ward of Meduseld and captain of the guard, meets Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli at the steps, greeting the wizard as Gandalf Greyham. Gandalf is currently wearing a heavy gray cloak, hiding his new white threads. And Hama, just for uh, posterity's sake, is played by John Lee. And because Emily has a Justice for Hama campaign ready to go, maybe the Wolves of Isengard might be a good 
a good spot where we'll talk about Hama a little more in depth just because, you know, we can pour one out for him and then also regale about the many tales and adventures of Hama. (laughs) Yes, uh, that is, yes. Oh God, I'm so fucking hyped for that. Um, I just want to point out the name Hama is uh, Anglo-Saxon and it means like home or hearth. uh, And it is uh, part of the same root word that gives us hamfast, like hamfast Gamgee. Oh, very, very cool. Um, for some reason, I think I either associated with helms or hammers. I was just thinking like helm hammer hand. And if someone nice. told me it's Hama, the helm hammer, it's just like all alliteration. But no, I think that makes sense. And given that he's the door ward of Medusel, the whole kind of home um, naming convention or hearth or whatever actually really, really makes a lot of sense. Yes, it does. Um, it's also, um, yeah, so so door wardens, um, I feel like, well, no, I feel like I know this is a thing that doesn't really exist anymore. It's not a position that exists anymore. But actually, it's like uh, it's like being like the head of the king's bodyguard. Um, it is like a position of high, high, high honor uh, to be able to guard the the king's hall uh, and to d- decide who does and doesn't have entry is like an immensely important role. So like Hama's not just some fucking guy. He is like the guy. <laughs> Uh, what was uh, Peregrine Took made at Minas Tirith? What title was he given? Uh, Pippin was uh, made a uh, guard of the Citadel, uh, and Mary is uh, uh, the Esquire of Rohan. Okay, okay. Um, I, I was wondering if there was any similarity there between the two. But, yeah, so um, it kind of is, but like... I mean, it definitely is. Like, it definitely is. But Gondor being Gondor, like, industrializes it. So there's, like, 60 tower guards. uh, And they're all kind of treated like... I guess it's kind of like the rotation for, like, the guys who stand outside the Tuma, the unknown soldier. Except they're always on duty and actually fight. (laughs) Okay. No, that that, that explains quite a bit to me. Hama informs them that they cannot enter so heavily armed by order of Grima Wormtongue, and the way Hama says it really signals that he, too, is not a fan of Grima. He doesn't quite roll his eyes, but the sentiment is there, and I like it a lot. (laughs) Especially later in the scene when Grima's men attack Gandalf, but Hama holds back gambling from joining in. Gandalf gives the okay to his comrades to surrender their weapons, and I'm so sorry. I love this little scene so much. I think it appeals to my action movie video game lizard brain to watch the three hunters hand over all their weapons. It's almost like a Simpsons bit in how long it goes, like there's almost one more rake to step on. Aragorn is pulling daggers out of everywhere. It feels like Legolas is pulling weapons out of his hair. Gimli has a dozen axes that need to be handed over. I really love this as comic relief. It's not really at the expense of any character or driven by a quip or wink-wink comment. We know these folks are warriors, well-armed and battle-tested, but getting that little smile out of me, it just... It has a certain confidence to it to shoot this scene this way. I know we're going to tear apart some of the flattening of the politics in this upcoming scene, but I really just like that Peter Jackson clearly knows what his adaptation of the story is about. Um, I think this moment tells me that as good as any other. Yep. Oh, I totally agree. Um, I had this kind of light bulb moment when I may or may not have been uh, inebriated in one fashion or another, um, where uh, Peter Jackson uses 
like not I wouldn't say cheap moments, but kind of like easy moments of comic relief uh, in his films in the same way that Tolkien uses songs um, as like this kind of narrative breather. Uh, and so like, um, you know, there's this sense of like Peter Jackson uses laughter. You have this emotional break of laughter and the kind of tension goes away. Tolkien uses a chance to read through or not read through or skip uh, the the songs as a way to kind of zone out and be reminded that there's there are more things beyond just this immediate story or to just take a deep breath as your eyes skip over all of the lines of the the song uh, and i think they kind of serve the same function for for both of these adap- not adaptations for the source text and the adaptation gandalf pleads to keep his staff though an old man and his stick his stick <laughs> uh w- which you know hama just kind of like yeah whatever and again i think it's kind of like it's probably better if we let gandalf keep his stick um, Gandalf does do a little wink wink at Aragorn, which I could live without the wink, but I actually really like Vigo Mortensen hiding the grin on his face as they walk through the doors. So now inside the Hall of Meduseld, um, as Gandalf and company kind of walk up to the throne, Grima is uh, sitting next to Theoden and basically giving him some DVD style commentary as Gandalf enters the halls. He is unwelcome. He's a herald of woe, last spell, ill news makes an ill guest. It's all just really, really good writing, um, probably from Tolkien specifically. Um, and then Theoden kind of picks up on this, and then he's like, why should I welcome you, Gandalf Stormcrow? Which I just have to flag that Stormcrow is the name of a sellsword company in A Song of Ice and Fire that I almost am guaranteed have to believe it comes from this utterance of the word. Yeah, I could believe that. Um, I fucking love this bit because I love Theoden and Grima ganging up to call Gandalf a bitch in about a million different ways. And it does sort of come from, like, it definitely does come from the books, but not with the same vitriol and fervor. That is definitely uh, Brad Dorif. Uh, uh, oh my God, why did I just lose his name? Uh, Bernard, uh, Bernard Hill uh, special there. Um, but I also like it because there is a sort of like hegemony of these types titles um in both the films and the books and that these are like largely recognized titles for Gandalf not just by Hogan Cream on Theoden like lots of the Rohirrim know him by these names which means that like Gandalf is widely known as a bitch and that is dead funny to me it fits right in line with your ideology so I totally get that (laughs) (laughs) um and just speaking of lines I think about a lot ill news is an ill guest um I don't know why. Um, I actually listened to a lot of Beastie Boys back in the day, so I wonder if it's all that license to ill and ill communication like <laughs> shit that's kind of rattling around up there. But I just really love, I just really love that line. I love like basically every line in the scene we've covered today is pretty much you know, chef's kiss. Like it's great. And speaking of shit that I think is great, um, after. Uh, Gandalf sticks his staff in uh, Grima's face. First, Brad Dorf gives this excellent line reading of, I told you to take the wizard's staff. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's not a good line reading at all. But, like, it is so, so good. And he's kind of doing it as he's kind of, like, backpedaling away, like Homer Simpson back into the bushes. Like, <laughs> oh, shit, I have to get out of here now kind of thing. Um, and from there, uh, Grima, who has his own, like, group of hired goons basically um they rush gandalf and his company you know trying to take him out and the three hunters are forced to fight them off uh hand to hand like you know they left all their weapons at the door and 
let me just tell you, oh baby, this is extremely <laughs> my shit. Um, the hunters have been plowing through orcs with all their weapons, so it's just kind of fun to strip away, strip all that away, and watch the three of them brawl with Grima's goons. Gimli is just a little bowling ball bouncing around. Aragorn is more, more of a classic brawler a la Stone Cold Steve Austin. While Legolas gets to be the martial artist in line with the training Orlando Bloom said he undertook ahead of the filming. Legolas even does a little Bruce Lee backhanded fist to a guy behind him, which triggers my lizard brain in like 80 different ways. Another thing I really actually like about all this fight is the way that all three of the hunters are kind of orbiting around Gandalf as he's kind of making his approach to the throne. Um, it actually reminds me a lot of Ian McKellen's scene in X2, where Magneto like breaks out of his like plastic prison and he has like two metal balls like orbiting him like he's an atom or whatever. Um, I almost get the same feel from this. And these movies came out like I think months apart from each other. Um, so I think it's just... Seeing Ian McKellen basically do the same stick, but in two wildly different outfits, um, it again, Lizard Brain is just on full activation <laughs> at this point. Um, so we'll get a little more into Gandalf actually breaking Theoden's ensorcelment here. Um, there's uh, Gandalf's kind of speaking in a manner that he's trying to pull Theoden back from the bad place, like invoking his name and his line to kind of scatter the clouds that are darkening his mind. Um, and at this point, it's worth noting that Gandalf is still in his gray cloak. Um, and I fucking love Bernard Hill channeling his inner Saruman as he cackles like a madman here. <laughs> The Theoden we'd seen up to this point was basically on Ambien, barely scraping together full sentences. So when he shows some actual vitality in this, like, ensorcelled state, it is very deeply unsettling. Yeah, and, and to deliver, like, one of the most, bro not brilliant, because it's not, like, creative, but it's just such a fucking good line that, like, you have no power here, Gandalf the Grey. Um, I fucking love that line, and it, it like, it does scratch the, like, lizard brain itch, but the other thing that I love about it is there's so much wrapped up in it. Like, one, like, Saruman's fucking millennia-old complaint about Gandalf being a dude with like too many of his fingers and too many pies and uh, that's really funny to get in this as well but also the like bitchiness of being like and you're dressed like shit because the colors don't really actually have like a relationship to the hierarchy of the astari like the gray gandalf the gray doesn't mean that he's like a lesser like the gray is not the thing that makes him the lesser wizard mm -hmm. compared to saruman uh, like it, it just doesn't um and it is incredibly funny that like of all of the things that saruman really needs to like fucking fight gandalf on right here right now at this kind of crucial moment it's telling him telling him he looks like shit <laughs> what a move and to counter looking like shit gandalf reveals that he actually doesn't look like shit <laughs> and pulls away his great cloak <laughs> revealing gandalf the white in full um some really like Awesome and awesome. I mean, like in the more like dictionary definition of it, not like how the Ninja Turtles would say it. <laughs> but there's this like awesome angelic music that plays behind him um, that really kind of sells the magnitude of this. And I also want to highlight the like lighting here um, because it kind of like 
all the lights around, like in the back of the hall and at the fringes kind of just goes dark. Um, so that this white light basically that's look seems to be emanating from Gandalf, but it's mostly just framing him and shining down on him. But then you see that kind of reflecting back onto Theoden. It's all just like really well done. It really helps draw your eyes to what the screen wants you to focus on. Um, and, and like the effect it has, the music, the lighting, the visuals as uh, Bernard Hill is kind of pushed back into a seat. It's almost like a jet engine is blowing him back because of, again, the awesomeness of everything that's happening right in front of him. Um, and I, again, going to another line I really love, I will draw you Saruman as poison is drawn from a wound. Mm. Um, just cause I don't think about drawing poison from wounds very often, but that's a really <laughs> cool way to kind of think of someone else's in your head or, you know, has you under their spell. And I know I kind of raved about the wizard fight in Fellowship of the Ring with the two old men falling over each other using the force. And I feel like this is a different fun way to think of wizards and magic fighting. Uh, Theoden being in the middle is not a not so subtle metaphor for everything going on between the wizards and the kingdom of Rohan and generally the war of the ring at large. And I enjoy flashing back to Isengard and getting a bloodied Saruman picking himself off the floor. It gives some real weight and grit to this fight that seemed to be like on the astral plane. So kind of seeing that kind of breakthrough into the material world um, actually kind of just up the stakes for me a little bit. Yeah. And it's also like such a kind of crucial component of magic and Middle Earth is that like you could never fully escape the like tangibility of it all. Uh, which is why I'm here to deliver the most dumbass stoner take imaginable, which is like all of this shit with like Theoden, right? And having Saruman in his head is really just the Pink Floyd song brain damage. <laughs> Cause it's like <laughs> the lunatic is in my head. There's someone in my head and it's not me, but also the kind of like echoing choral bits, the great David Gilmer guitar. Uh, yes, I'm here from the 1970s, 1980s, I guess, early 1980s to deliver that absolute fucking clanger of a take. <laughs> Oh, no. I, hey, I love it. I listen to Dark Side of the Moon pretty regularly. So next time I hear brain damage, um, that, that sort of brain damage is going to work on me. I'm not going to think about Theoden, um, which uh, I'm also going to put a call out to listeners. If there's a way in Spotify to like link two songs so that it doesn't shuffle brain damage and then doesn't go in, or I would like it to go into Eclipse right after that. But no, it just like switches to some Metallica song or something. And I really miss uh, the pairing of the two songs together. There should be a way to couple songs in Spotify. I think this this is a feature that has value, I think. Yes, agreed. But um, after uh, Gandalf kind of does his magic thing, uh, Theoden slumps down into his chair, um, and then we kind of see the aging or the ensorcelment, whatever you want to call it, kind of wear off. And I want to read this little excerpt uh, from... Um, I think it's from the VFX team. I, I didn't actually get the name on this quote, but kind of telling what actually happened. Um, they had Bernard Hill in four different stages of makeup, from the cursed, aged old man to the fully cured Theoden. On set, Bernard had to act out the same, sh or the same, you know, parts four times uh, in each of the four different stages of makeup, matching the head movement and expression each time. The, the digital VFX team then morphed all the footage together into what we see in the movie, and honestly, it just 
looks so, so good. And, you know, we've talked about how these films are broadly about, at least from a production ideology standpoint, meshing the old methods and the new methods. And here is maybe like the most crystallized version of that, where you see them using makeup and then using the digital technology to kind of blend them together. All the while, it's still completely reliant on Bernard's Hill's performance, uh, his facial motions and how he's saying every word. I guess he's not really talking during this, but... Um, he basically has to go through the motions each time. So like no performance is lost, even though they're using digital technology to make all this face thing seem so seamless, I guess would be the word. <laughs> so then, you know, Gandalf says, you know, the best way for a man to feel strong is to grab his dick. Um, <laughs> oh, sword. Sorry. Um, so um, Hama comes up with Herogrim. Um, and again, this is very much uh, tying political strength to martial power or, you know, to martial ability. Um, as uh, Theoden, you know, pulls out the sword. I love the, like, two horses that face each other that make the cross guard of it. Yeah. Um, at first, I thought it was a little heart, um, oh. but it's just a, a really nice flourish once you actually look closer. This is the value of HD and 4K. Um, I'm going to pin it on that. No, I'm kidding, but... Um, he pulls it out and the camera kind of rotates around Theoden and then he just starts making like, I'm going to kill you eyes at Grima. <laughs> um, um, yes. So swords, uh, we've done this before, I think in the Amon Hen episode, uh, where we talked about, uh, Aragorn and the symbols of kingship. Um, but it is worth pointing out here that the, the sword is obviously an incredibly important symbol of like kingship and masculine authority and knighthood and chivalry. Um, but it's not the only important symbol of kingship. Uh, and there is something else equally phallic that is an important symbol of kingship, which is the scepter, uh, the scepter and the rod. Um, and uh, we only see Theoden ever grasp a sword. Uh, Theoden never fully takes up that other element of kingship. He's always the sort of warrior king and never the poet king, the scholar king. Uh, and Aragorn, of course, does take up uh, the, the the sort of scepter uh, of Gondor. Uh, there is the, you know, the banner that he takes up, the literal banner from Arwen with the white tree. Uh, but then there's also the kind of splitting of that responsibility to the white rod, which is the white rod of stewardship, which Aragorn cannily hands back to Faramir at the end. Um, and so unlike Theoden, who only ever grasps the sword and whose kingship is only ever founded on the symbol of the sword and of violence and of war, Aragorn actually kind of has this more rounded and complete kingship. As I said, Theoden wants to turn his sword on Grima, who'd been slinking on all fours as Gandalf had his big wizard reveal party. Here again, we see how Theoden serves Aragorn's character, giving the latter a chance to be the merciful king and spare Grima's life, who skedaddles back to Isengard from here. But so as not to be a total upstart, Aragorn bows down with all the other Rohirrim as the king emerges from his hall for the first time in a long time, presumably. <sighs> yeah, I hate this. I really fucking hate this. It's also the case in, in well, it's it's lesser it's less the case in the book. In the book, um Grima's not really owning to being Saruman's lackey. Um and Gandalf is like, let him go free. We will see where he goes. Uh and he will probably go to Saruman. Uh and then we will know for sure that Saruman has been the one who's been influencing your your kingdom, Theoden, uh, because obviously they haven't just FaceTimed Saruman and had that confirmation. So 
although I disagree with it incredibly, there is slightly more of a justification there instead of this limpthick fucking claim for mercy, plea for mercy from Aragorn. In the movies, there's none of that. And Aragorn just looks like a turbo cunt for being like, oh, enough blood has been spilled. But what? No fucking like retribution or rep- like reparations for fucking Eowyn? Like, are you kidding me? Like, are you kidding me? I'm, like, I'm sorry, but are you kidding me? This is not a thing that was in the book. So they went out of their way to add this in. Are you fucking kidding me? Justice for Eowyn, but also loads of dudes in this fucking series get killed for half as significant as infractions as perving on Eowyn, basically the only woman in this fucking series. Are you kidding me? What horse shit? They were already going to deviate from the scouring of the Shire anyways, which means that Grima really isn't actually that important. And all he does is like slink about like a fucking pervert in Isengard. And Saruman is already established as just talking to himself anyway. So it's not like he needs Brad Dorif there to talk. Now, of course, it is a better scene for him being there. But he doesn't have to be there. There's nothing narratively to say that it can't just be some fucking orc. So have them kill Grima. Give Aragorn the chance to do some righteous violence so that he's not just being a little bitch about violence all the time. Uh, that's it. That's all I got. This is my soul leaving my body here. Okay. I, I do not have any such strong thoughts <laughs> <laughs> about this scene. Um, I think... Um, so this would be post-Game of Thrones stuff, but... I think actually seeing an act of mercy like has a little more weight with me, but like in the context of a song of ice and fire, like they actually like the ramifications of showing mercy are very much discussed, uh, but especially with Ned Stark, but also his son, Rob. Um, so anytime I see any kind of act of mercy, I remember this Rob Stark line about how like my, my dad always understood there's always room for mercy and stuff like that. So that's kind of what plays in my head now. Um, but at this point I figured this was just plot stuff. This needs to get Grima to Isengard. Um, but I never really also thought about is, yeah, they really don't need him there all that much either. I'm glad they kept him around. Um, but there could, you could have accomplished this without necessarily doing it this way, I guess. Um, yeah, Theoden could I have just he, banished him as like he doesn't want his first act to be to kill someone when he's normal again, yes. or just like, there, there's a million ways to do that. That's just one I thought of right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I also think like, because the line is literally there in the book, and obviously they've kind of screwed it in a way, but like, they don't 100% know that Grima is like definitely Saruman's lackey and not just like a total freak. Um, and I think like also they like, I agree with you on the mercy thing. I agree with you that the mercy element is actually really big. Um, I think they could have done, uh, mercy in a far more like successful way, um, where like a woman, uh, is not kind of just like put on the fucking altar of men looking noble, uh, for a throwaway line in this film, um, by either having cutting the bullshit Faramir plot, which we're going to get to anyways, um, or by, having Aragorn, bringing back the character of Baragond for Gondor, having him be involved in the successful rescuing of Faramir, uh, doing that discussion of him having abandoned his post to have done it, and then also having Aragorn show mercy, go against the direct letter of the law to quote-unquote banish him, but only to banish him to go protect Faramir and Athelion. And that is an act of mercy, but it's a justified act of mercy, and it shows that the people who deserve mercy are not the little shitheads who do violence on people and then go, oh, I'm just a little guy, I'm just a little guy when they get caught. <laughs> it's the people who like break the rules for a higher purpose. And I'm 7-Eleven, Peter Jackson, 7-Eleven fucking parking lot, me and you, PJ, we're fucking going. 
And then the last thing I want to do to close out this section is just this is where we really, really start getting the Rohan score thrown at us like regularly and awesomely. Um, that time I do mean it like the Ninja Turtles way. It's just <laughs> fucking rad as hell. Um, we kind like the movie so far, we got like a hint of the Rohan theme when the three hunters arrived um, at Rohan and the whole Legolas, what do your elf I see? But they've actually kind of been. Um, like withholding a little bit since that moment um, because we've had scenes in Rohan, especially all the earlier stuff with Theoden and Eomer. Um, we don't get the Rohan uh, music um, at all. But then once the three hunters arrive here, we start getting it several times. We get a bar when they arrive within, you know, eyeline of Edoras or within visual range of Edoras. Um, and then when, uh, Eowyn bursts out, uh, you know, through the front doors after her <laughs> encounter with Grima and the flag, you know, flies off. We also get a slow string rendition of the Rohan theme there. Uh, that slow rendition is, I know I've said the word masterful so many times, it's basically lost its meaning in this episode, but that slow rendition of it is fucking masterful because it gets this, like, at no point in this motif do the strings ever sound weak it's not like they're backing off from being played like no those fingers are pressing hard on the motherfucking fretboards like you can hear it and their notes those notes are being played with purpose and they're not backing off of it but it's sad it's so sad so it's really proud strings but so heartbreakingly sad and that vibrato almost sounds like someone crying as they look at this sort of broken mess that is the kingdom of Rohan. And the fact that like Howard Shore galaxy brain that he is, uh, has, is able to kind of take this exact same note se sequence of notes on the strings and have it be this sad, sobbing kind of, but still proud lament for a lost kingdom and just punch it up with some horns later and turn it into a fucking baller rallying cry and, and, you know, hound chasing song is like, this is truly these movies at their absolute best, just unequivocally banging out perfect 100% on those report cards. Uh, and we do get the Rohan score two more times in this little scene we talked about. <laughs> um, as the three hunters and Gandalf make their way up the hill, um, we get a long shot of Edoras with Medusel on top, and we get another bit of the Rohan theme there. And then finally, at the end, um, after the spell has been broken, uh, Theoden rises from his seat. The whole grabbing his sword thing, all that is set to the Rohan leitmotif. Um, so now it's pretty much going to be hot and heavy with the Rohan stuff. Whenever we're doing <laughs> Rohan uh, scenes, we're going to get that leitmotif. And every time it does, it makes my heart sing. They yeah. frankly don't do it enough, even though they, <laughs> it's pretty much like 30 to 40% of the score from here on out. <laughs> Uh, I've held off, so I, I guess you could say held off. I really haven't held off in any way. I've just like, <laughs> Not at all. put the like anger that I've let the hate flow through me into the most asinine points elsewhere. Um, but now it's time to talk about Theoden in the books versus Theoden in the movies. I don't know what the hell is going on with Sarah, man. Um, this arc with Theoden and Saruman and Grima is surprisingly one of the few moments in which the books are more prosaic in their approach than the movies. Um, 
the movies tend to ascribe a certain level of like post enlightenment kind of like science mindedness. Uh, not to sound like a fucking burn the witch for doing chemistry or whatever, but like, you know, they are obsessed with having clear cause and effect and having that cause and effect be a fa- basically rational thing. And Tolkien is not really concerned with that. He's far more spiritual in, in nature um, and is uh, quite a bit more content to handle the the questions of mysticism, at least when he's writing Lord of the Rings uh, in the 70s. He has a weird turn towards the scientific and that benefited absolutely nobody. Um, in, in the books... Um, Theoden is not under a spell, or I should say he is not as dramatically under a spell as he is shown to be in the movies. And if Theoden is under a spell, then it is a spell that exists in between lines. You have to read between the lines to get to that spell, Uh, which means that it's open for interpretation for what the fuck is going wrong with Theoden, sort of. I would argue it's actually not really open for interpretation for what the fuck is going on with Theoden. Because one of these crucial points of the Theoden arc, as I've argued, I feel like ad nauseum at this point, is Tolkien's critique of bad monarchs. If you take that agency away from Theoden, and that is the agency to be a bad, shitty king, and put it in the hands of this bad actor, then Theoden is effectively absolved of all his blame. Yes, Rohan went to shit under Theoden, and yes, he's a, a, a you know abdicated his responsibility to his ward, and yes, he had his someone who is effectively his son thrown in jail or or exiled, depending on if it's book or movie. And yes, he let his fucking son go thoroughly unprotected to an incredibly dangerous war zone uh, and died. And now he doesn't have another son, doesn't have another heir except for his his nephew, which is not really how these things work. And um, all of these things are failures. But like, yes. All of these things are failures, but actually, uh, it doesn't. It's not really his fault because he wasn't in his right mind, and he was controlled by some wizard, the strongest wizard on Middle Earth, perhaps most powerful being besides Gandalf and Sauron. So, really, is he actually to blame? That's the argument that the movies put forward inadvertently. I think uh, you know, Theoden's not really to blame for any of the things that go wrong because his mind is overthrown. That is so totally not the argument that the books put across. Um, the books have to toe a kind of uncomfortable line because they uh, they because Tolkien is an ardent monarchist. He he believes thoroughly and seriously in the the legitimacy of monarchy as a as a, go- a system of governance. So he can't be too critical of a monarchy and of a king and he can't reveal too many of the weaknesses of monarchies without effectively undermining his entire way of thinking. So he has to allow for there to be some minimized or minimal rather but some influence of a uh, uh, of a sort of spell <laughs> mystical magical nature um in the unfinished tales um which helps to fill out a lot of the sort of like cut scenes from the lord of the rings um it is made slightly more clear that there is potentially some poison at work um except as is the brilliant tolkien fashion it's more a matter of Poison was dripped into his ear, nudge, nudge, Hamlet. Uh, Does that mean that Grima's words are poison, as in the movies? Or is it literal poison that makes him kind of frail of mind? Um, A lot of people, uh, including the people who adapted these films, uh, take the position that it was literal poison uh, being dripped into his ears, into his mind, uh, and and uh, all of his failures are of a magical nature. 
I would contend that this is not the correct interpretation, that the correct interpretation is actually um, Grima was a smooth talker. Uh, he played on all of Theoden's uh, worst faults. He played on his pride. He played on his tendency to be paranoid. He played on his tendency to not trust other people, to not delegate properly, to be covetous uh, and, and, and sort of gluttonous in his desires, avaricious, proud, and angry. Uh, and lo and behold, all of those traits come together uh, with a guy who uh, is trying to get something that he wants uh, in a very underhanded way, ends up with a functionally useless king. Um, I think this is important for a lot of reasons that that this is the this is the correct interpretation and and not the magical interpretation. Like I will happily concede that is a far more visually and like emotionally interesting movie to have it be the magic but i think the the character depth and the, the plot depth is lost for having it be magic because theoden is no longer actually this loose canon deeply nuanced and and troubling figure his worst sin really in the two towers and return of the king is that he doesn't bend the knee to aragorn and do exactly what aragorn wants him to do all the time like that's the best kind of sin, worst sin that the movies can actually come up for her in, in the end, especially because they neuter the more horrifying element of his lack of a relationship with Eowyn. Um, in the books, Theoden is a king and he's a rightful king. And in the end, when when his back is put, like when he is when his back is thrown against the wall, he does do the right thing. He does defend his kingdom. He does come to the aid of this Christ-like figure, and and he does ultimately choose the side of good. Um, but until then. The 40, well, the 60, 70 years of his life that precede that, he makes all of the wrong choices all of the time. Um, and he is absolutely culpable for that. He is absolutely culpable for, for Rohan, for the Rittermark having fallen to shit. He's absolutely responsible for Eowyn being suicidally unhappy. Um, and 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 the fact that, you know, Tolkien expects us as readers to be able to take the fact that Theoden is this deeply shitty, odious person, this king who's just a cunt, um, but who ultimately does the right thing and is on our side in the end. He's on the side of good in the end and so does deserve the accolades and laurels of, of victory and, and of a, a warrior's death sets up so much, so much of these books and so much of the point of these books. Um, you know, we get, we see this problem where this movie falls into the pitfalls again with Denethor and its characterization of Denethor. And Denethor, of course, is another one of these figures who is deeply odious uh, and a huge jackass um, and a, not a very nice person to be around, but who's on the side of good and aggressively on the side of good and more committed to the side of good than almost anybody else and also cares enormously deeply about the people around him. Um, and and despite all of these really aggressive flaws, we have to accept that he is ultimately a force for good, despite all of these, you know, as is the trendy term, these shades of grey. Um, and, and, and then you also get this issue of Gollum later. Gollum is the one who destroys the ring. Gollum is an odious, morally repugnant character, uh, you know, worthy of pity, yes, but also just a deeply fucked little thing. Uh, and he is the one who destroys the ring. Uh, and so we have to deal with this good with the bad, good with the bad, good with the bad. And that is what Tolkien is training us to do and training us to have this sort of nuanced position on the like value judgments we we assign to these characters. Um, and it is, it is kind of this great gripe of mine, this unfortunate gripe of mine, because it just does make me like the world's worst fucking killjoy, uh, that the movie doesn't really cue closely to that and basically d just does this like absolution of sins 
because I just do think that it like enforces a kind of lazier way of thinking about people and, and politics and, and authority figures uh, than really it really needs to. Yeah, uh, you were you were on the verge of uh, quoting Stannis Baratheon there with the ooh, good does ooh. not wash out the bad and the bad does not wash out the good. Um, but I am going to make a really weak ass attempt at perhaps countering your argument. Yes. Um, part of this is just practice because I feel like at this point I am letting your insane Lord of the Ring takes live rent free in my head. <laughs> um, and also, uh, some of it is just, uh, this is a banger scene and possibly my favorite movie. So I got to, you know, you have my sword, uh, I say to this movie, I guess, <laughs> um, I, I, and I, this, I will gladly, I will preface this, not at, this is clearly me playing apologetics and not me like, oh, actually I interpret it this way and my take is valid. My take is completely invalid. Too late, canceled. Um, but, <laughs> um, I do want to, um, talk about it. And the first one that you got was absolutely, uh, you included in your discussion is the fact that it's just more cinematic. Um, it just works, you know, visually it works really well, as we talked about in our analysis of the scene. Um, I also think by leaving it up to magic, it magic is a space to me where the reader is able to come to their own conclusions a little bit more. Um, I mean, if done well, magic can really be done poorly or be so strictly defined that there is no room for interpretation. But the way these films are generally approaching it is like, there's some magic here and we're not going to really explain it, but magic, ah, um, but nothing like terribly important hinges on it where it feels like the story is being cheapened because of how it's doing it. Um, so I just think I like the, the fact that it's magic oriented allows space for me or other viewers to kind of insert, you know, their own interpretations in there. Um, I think part of it is, and we're going to have a big, uh, episode on adaptation coming up soon. Um, I think some of it is, it, it goes back to what AJ was saying, and I'm quoting AJ here because he also believes these films are beyond reproach and that they're like <laughs> the greatest thing that came during our lifetimes, is he was, like, you can't always adapt, you can't adapt something to be everything that it necessarily wants to be, so you have to adapt it for, you know, what works for the people adapting it. Um, it's a little different when it's one person adapting something. This is obviously a collaborative effort, but I just think in the adaptations great scheme of things what is happening with rohan's politics broadly are just not important to peter jackson and philippa boyens and the rest of them um you know important enough that they give it lip service but this isn't the interrogation of rohan uh, per se <laughs> um and i think one of the ways i think it works is because the books and especially what tolkien was doing broadly with the legendarium beyond just writing the lord of the rings um the books have time to linger and fill in some of the spaces and history, um, you know, beyond what just happens in the two towers and return of the King. I think what the film does is they can't really bother with any of the Rohan history. So Theoden's failing reign beforehand is just not something they, they mention discuss, but what they do do is that even after Theoden, you know, comes back to the land of the living or whatever, um, he, like he's still kind of viewed as kind of like in the middle, a bit too contemplative, a bit of a frustrating character for Gandalf and Aragorn. And I think th and through some of his kind of like, you know, the decision to move to Helm's Deep is kind of like framed by the film itself as the wrong decision in the moment. I don't know what the good decision is per se, um, but, you know, 
Gandalf and Aragorn and Gimli are not very happy about it. So I take that to mean that the audience should think it's kind of a not great decision. Hmm. Um, and then early in Return of the King, when is like, why should we ride to Gondor's aid when they never came to our aid? Um, and even stuff at the end of this movie with, you know, where was Gondor when the Westfold fell? Um, I do feel like those are things that add to Theoden's character that kind of get that he might not be the virtuous king. But I think you are also right that they're also setting Theoden up to be kind of a foil to Denethor in a way. And Denethor is just a complete shit in the movies. Like, um, he is not very complicated at all uh, in Return of the King. Um, And I think to the detriment of the adaptation. But I think because of that, they go a little lighter on Theoden um, because I think there is some kind of parallel there that I think they were building towards, but I don't think they actually meaningfully pay off in any real way, at least in the films. Um, So I know that's kind of incoherent. I kind of had to make this up on the fly Uh, as we were talking. But I I think ultimately, I think it works best for the visual medium. And what they're trying to do with the complication around Theoden's character is more in the moment with events we've yet to see in the film, as opposed to pinning the whole state of what's going on right now on a history that the audience never really becomes privy to. Yeah, um, I think this so is also possibly the best uh, like argument ever for making Lord of the Rings a TV series and not movies. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I'm kind of against TV shows right now. (laughs) Disney Plus is Lord of the Rings. Um, I think forcing people to cut some of the stuff is actually for the betterment of all, (laughs) all mankind, really. Um, But I mean, I get I think I think you're completely right. And I've mentioned a couple of times already on this podcast that it severely flattens all the politics that are going on. Um, And I definitely think. I, I don't want to insult Peter Jackson by calling him the David and Dan from Game of Thrones of Lord of the Rings, <laughs> no. but it's very it, it's very clear what parts of a story appeals to certain people. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason why the Balrog scene or the last March of the Ends or the last, you know, ride out of Helm's Deep are like the pinnacles of these films, you know? Yeah. And it's not like the kind of two-hander character scenes, even though reading the books, um, especially now with a renewed love and a renewed interest and a purpose with this podcast, I'm like, oh yeah, all my favorite moments are like sitting around with Fatty Bulger back in the Shire and shit like this that absolutely did not appear to appeal to my cinematic brain um, and still doesn't really appeal to my cinematic brain, but I can see where that incongruency comes from. Yeah. Well, and I think that's actually a brilliant point about the like, you can tell what what kinds of things matter to different people based off of like what they overemphasize. Because just hearing that sentence there was like, oh, my God, my version of these films would be about 30 minutes in the Shire and about 10 and a half hours in Gondor with like a brief interlude in Moria Lothorian, uh, Rivendell in between. And like that would be no fun for anybody like it's just these weird emphases everybody puts on on the shit that scratches the monkey brain. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I think there is a bit of a stated purpose in what Jackson is doing, that he was looking to make a giant high fantasy spectacle. Yep. Um, and, that, and that's why a lot of the politics in Rohan exist to kind of wag the, or it's the tail wagging the dog of what they wanted for the big finish with Gandalf riding with Aomer down a giant hill and the sun <laughs> behind them and um all those kind of stuff are kind of informing what's you know kind of building up to it I think so um I don't think there's 
Well, of course, I'm going to say I don't think anyone's wrong when I'm one of those people who's talking, but um, I, I, I don't think like there's anything unfounded in what you're saying. Although I will also, my last counter argument is, do you really want Peter Jackson and company putting their ideology into what they think is going on? Um, <laughs> yes, that's Maybe it's better point. it's left as kind of agnostic uh, in terms of ideology, or at least not indifferent to it, I guess. Maybe the same thing. I don't know. No, no. Yep. Spot on. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash bomb, or possibly when this thing is released to the public, patreon.com slash mybrothermycaptainmypodcast. We will try to keep that up to date for you so this isn't so confusing. But anyway, I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, tweeting into the darkness alone in the bitter watches of the night when all my life seems shrinking in, yada, yada, yada. I was really hoping you'd finish that whole thing. <laughs> I forgot the Toast. rest. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. I feel like we should uh intro this uh segment here with the start of crazy town like won't you take me <laughs> to crazy town no it's funky town isn't it shit all right fine uh, i don't know what i'm talking about <laughs> who cares <laughs> and on that note um